because we had to walk a long ways in the water with uh, gear on my back and Ruby has little legs and we're both out of shape. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Alamo Retriever Club's Under the Ark. I'm Zach. And I'm Allie. Hey. Hey. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm sad. Yeah? Yep. What you sad about? We closed another duck season yesterday. Yeah, it's a sad time of the year in that regard. For me, you're you're happy because the floors aren't muddy anymore, or at least with my boot prints. And your alarm's not going off at four o'clock in the morning either. Fight me. <laughs> I'll tell you what though, I'm feeling it. I am absolutely feeling it after yesterday. It was it was it was a uh, pretty wet. Me and Ruby uh, were a little bit too out of shape for for the nonsense that we was pulling yesterday. Yeah. Yep. She's feeling it too. Did you see her gimping around this morning? I did. I did. Um, wait, are you going to explain why she was gimping around? Because we had to walk a long ways in the water with uh, gear on my back. And Ruby has little legs. And, and we're both out of shape. <laughs> and wasn't there a really strong current that she almost got swept away in? In places. So when we walked into this one, um, this one area... It was probably waist deep on me and the current was fast. I mean, it was swift. It wasn't what I would call dangerous for at least for humans, but she, you know, was just following me doing what she thought she was supposed to do. And, and I had to kind of help her along. So that was, that was challenging, but, uh, but yeah, it, it was definitely tough. And then walking in, we were walking against the flow. That's just where it's just spilling out across the property. So yeah, it made for, it made for a challenging walk, especially for a large man who seldom works out. And, um, and eats a lot of Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> so. Yeah, she was definitely sore the next day. I noticed that she was limping a little bit when she got up the next morning. So I snuck her a, a, a little joint health supplement and she seems, she's happy. She's back to her normal self, but she is giving giving you the love eyes and asking when you're going to take her hunting again. Um. It's going to be a minute, sweet dog. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, but uh, we got all, we got a hot summer to get through, but we've got a fun spring test and training season to get through as well. So it's going to be a blast. Speaking of which, Alamo HRC hunt test is February 25th, uh, excuse me, February 24th and 25th and entries are now open. So y'all get in there and get entered. And if you're not able to uh, and want to walk up, we will have started walk-up spots pending availability. Um, but we're going to be having training days every Saturday leading up to the test. So the third, which is this weekend, uh, the 10th and the 17th. And then the test of course is the 24th, um, contact Jamie Reed to RSVP to the training days. You can reach Jaime at 432-290-2495. And he does answer to Jamie or Jaime. Got a couple of new members. Want to throw some shout outs out there. So Mr. Jeff Henderson and Miss Nicole Holder uh, got their memberships locked in yesterday. And I'm super, super excited to have them to be a part of the club now. So shout out Jeff and Nicole and y'all's families. Really happy to have you guys. Hey, Jeff and Nicole. 
<laughs> Hope you're joining us tonight. We also are super excited. We mentioned this last week, but we're going to keep plugging it until it happens. The Heart of Texas Labrador Retriever Club is having a Labrador Palooza May 11th of 24 at the Blue Bonnet Bunkin Biscuit in Selma, Texas. Uh, they're going to be doing a B confirmation match, which is not for points or anything. It's just for fun. There's going to be an eye clinic and a heart clinic with two different types of testing. Um, you can find them on Facebook. Uh, for more information on that. And that's the heart of Texas Labrador Retriever Club. Heck yeah. Freaking love those guys. Me too. Yeah. Heart of Texas. Like I said last week or whenever it was, they're just good people. Uh, that WC was, was a lot of fun getting to meet uh, a lot of those folks. And that was it Stacy and Starkey. Yeah. So I think we're maybe having them on as mm -hmm. guests in the near future, right? Yeah, we're going to talk to Stacy and Starkey about confirmation and how having a dog who's confirmationally correct actually benefits you, whether you're hunting or you have a service dog or you want to do, you know, and not a lot of people do agility with labs, but you could, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're going to give us a really great explanation on why Labradors should look the way that confirmation says they should look and how it actually benefits all Labrador owners. owners. Yeah, I got you. That's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. It's going to be pretty informative for me because, uh, you know, me in my quote unquote American labs, I do so, <laughs> the fire breathers from hell, you know, so let's uh, let's get after it, though. But, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I'm, I'm excited to have those guys on. But well, and speaking of hmm. the Heart of Texas Labrador Club, yep. um, our our guest tonight is also a member of the Heart of Texas Labrador Club. Ah, She is. She is. So, um, Ashlyn, take us, you know, real quick how we met. We we have a, a breeder friend in common that we both co-owned a dog with. And you came to a hunt test and said, tell me about it. And then I went to a dog show and I said, tell me about it. And then an epic friendship was born. <laughs> that's pretty much how it folded out. Yeah, that's that's pretty much exactly how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Rio. <laughs> Oh gosh! Oh, oh Rio! Oh, you can't big just throw buckle. that in there and not preface. <laughs> now you have to tell the story. Go for it. I do. Nope, we're so. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! So Rio is a chocolate. He is a showline confirmation English, whatever you want to call it. Lab. Um, he Zach has decided that his name is Big Old Butthole because he has a very severe case of stud butt. <laughs> and just, it is out there it is for everybody to see loud and proud um loud and proud and people come up to me at hunt tests that i don't know and ask is that big old butthole um it's happened on multiple occasions you're, you're, so, you're welcome you're welcome look yeah zach has really just cemented that name for rio <laughs> look when you stand on the line at an hrc started test for hours and hours and hours shooting the popper gun you see things and you start to notice things, you know, you pick out the little details of certain dogs and the little details of, of handlers and their quirks and the dogs and their quirks and so forth and so on. So when a dog with a, like Rio with a butthole like that walks up, you're going to notice it. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not going to lie. I mean, I mean even it. the judges were like, wow, that, that is, it really is. I yeah, it has happened a lot. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. You're absolutely welcome. Yeah, so anyway, tell us about Rio's career, not just his butthole. <laughs> <laughs> so he is 
just the most fun dog ever. Um, I, I did not know that this is the dog I wanted. Um, when I went to his breeder, I said, I want a pet and a dog that can maybe do dock diving. And that was really all that we were interested in. Um, long story short, he ended up being a singleton. So when she called me to tell me, um, okay, he was born, he's yours. Uh, she said, will you co-own him with me? And I was like, well, what does that entail? So long story short, um, we ended up getting into confirmation as our primary sport right at eight weeks old. Um, I started going to confirmation classes with him. And the main thing that we did for the first really oh, almost two years of his life was confirmation. Uh, we did a ton of showing in AKC and UKC. Um, and then more recently, we've been focused a whole lot more on hunt tests. We have both found me and Rio that that is our favorite thing to do. Um, Rio will do anything for a bird. That makes and me so happy. Uh, he just loves it, you know. Um, Allie had him for what, like a month or longer than that? I, I think he had him like six weeks, something like that. Yeah, yep. yeah. Allie had him for a while and um, helped me bridge the gap between the owner training that I had done and she helped me finish finish his porch, blah, finish his force fetch. Um, and Allie taught me literally everything about hunt tests um, and went to all my first hunt tests with me and everything. So. He has three passes for his started. We need the one more, but he has his junior title. We got it last spring, and I am super excited to go on to seasoned and senior and see what we can do. Um, and then we also do dock diving, um, and uh, that's probably our second favorite thing to do together. He has a dock junior, a dock senior title, and then he has jumps towards the dock senior advance. We'll just do that forever. Um, that's definitely the thing that I think we'll go the furthest in because it's just so accessible, but... Yeah, well, he's an awesome Texas, dog. Where it's really, really hot for nine months out of the year, that's a nice place to be. It's splashing next to a pool. Yes, it is super nice to be able to have something to keep doing during the summer. Because um, our winters don't usually get cold enough here to not be able to go out and train most days of the week for, you know, retriever things. Um, but during the summer is really where we get stuck um, in Texas and being able to go out and do a water activity during the summer is just like the perfect thing so that we have something to do all year round. So um, tell us a little bit about your education and your background in canine nutrition. Yeah. So I went to Texas A&M, um, studied animal science. That's what my bachelor's degree is in. Really was focused in college more on equine nutrition. I had planned to be in the horse industry. I thought that was going to be my life. And I did that for a year after I graduated and determined very quickly that horses were a hobby for me and absolutely not my career. Kind of took some time off, did some soul searching, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do professionally. And my dad had a connection at a pet food company based in Austin and ran into somebody at a networking event one day who said, hey, we're, isn't your daughter looking for a job? We're hiring. And yeah, it was really, really lucky. I got into that company at a fantastic time. I was there for four years. Um, it's a premium pet food brand. They make dog and cat food. And that was where I really got to do a whole lot of stuff. I got hired as a customer service specialist, um, moved up to customer service manager. And from there, I was able to work in product development, regulatory fulfillment, a little bit of marketing projects, and a lot of social media. And I spent a whole lot of time studying the ins and outs of canine nutrition. Most of what I had known at that point was livestock focused, and especially horses and cattle, which are a completely different animal. Um, they're herbivores, and they are heavily carbohydrate focused on those mm -hmm. diets. Diets. 
So I had to really spend a lot of time, especially in the first six months working there, learning the ins and outs of feeding a carnivore versus feeding an herbivore. And it was a pretty steep learning curve at first coming from having really, you know, just the one dog at the time. I also have a rescue dog who's the love of my life, but a mess. And at the time only having her, I didn't really know a whole lot about dog food and she was really the only frame of reference I had. So I was really, really lucky that that company invested in me a lot and spent a lot of time teaching me because I think in a very short amount of time, I just learned so much from them. I spent a little bit of time away from the pet food industry for a little while and then recently went back to the pet food industry. And so now I'm with another company that owns 11 brands and I work on nine of them. So during your break between pet food companies, where were you working? Well, (laughs) I may or may not have. No, I definitely worked for Garrison Brothers Distillery for a year and a half, and it was the best time. And I was such a huge fan of the bourbon already. So getting to work there for that year and a half that I was away from pet food was like an absolute dream. (laughs) So I'm going to take a gander that that's what you're drinking tonight. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. It's the only choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so we haven't done a whiskey of the week in a couple of weeks, honestly. So um, to have you on this evening and to be sitting here with a glass of it in front of me is uh, spot on. So when y'all. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I guess that uh, that night at that HRC test, that was payback for Rio's nickname. But um, yeah, yeah, you're also welcome for that. uh, For sure. (laughs) Well, I don't, was it, was it you or was it miles? I don't remember who kept pouring it, but uh, yeah, it was a great night. Oh, it was miles. It's always miles. From from what I was told, it was a great night. So um, we'll just, we'll just leave it at that. But yeah, Garrison brothers is uh, it's a good choice. If y'all have never had it, go and pick up a bottle. You can find it at pretty much any liquor store, I guess. Can't you, Ashlyn? Yeah, especially in Central Texas, you can find it pretty much anywhere. And at our upcoming hunt test, we have a gift from Garrison Brothers Distillery. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it'll be a gift basket with a bottle of Garrison Brothers Small Batch Bourbon. Uh, I believe it's two Glencairn glasses, which are the crystal nosing glasses, two Garrison Brothers t-shirts, and two VIP tour tickets to go tour the distillery out in High, which is near Fredericksburg. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. So is it, I guess it's going to be a raffle item, isn't it? I would think silent auction. Mm-hmm. We'll have to talk to uh, to the test secretary to decide where he wants to put it. But either way, it's coming home with me. So <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no big deal. Y'all don't get too excited. Anyway, so what are we uh, what are we jumping into tonight, babe? Well, we're gonna start from birth, even before birth, in the prenatal um, section, and head all the way into the senior dogs. So, um, let's talk a little bit about prenatal health and and nutrition. So, there's been this really cool trend that I have to admit that I have definitely uh, participated in um, of adding. Meat, maybe veggies, sweet potatoes, blueberries, Greek yogurt, cottage cheese, that sort of stuff to a mama's food when she's pregnant. Um, And the theory behind that, you know, has to do with the sweet potatoes and blueberries being antioxidants um, and adding, you know, dairy, uh, good calcium. Um, Tell us a little bit about your experience with that, Ashlyn, and, you know, if there's any information currently out there about the effectiveness of that. Yeah. So in general, you want to keep complete and balanced food. So something that is uh, meeting the AFCO nutrient profiles 
for either growth and reproduction, which would be for obviously growing puppies and then for pregnant bitches or lactating bitches, or something that meets the African nutrient profiles for maintenance. And that would be only for adult dogs. You want that to make up, most people say 80% of their calories for the day, but I would actually say 90 in a pregnant bitch. I would definitely recommend that making up 90% of their daily calories to ensure that you're not throwing anything off balance. Yes, protein and fat are always great. We want them to have a lot of protein and a lot of fat to make sure that they are meeting their energetic requirements. The caloric requirements of a pregnant bitch are going to increase quite a bit after the 40th day of gestation. So kind of at the end there, they do go up quite a bit and they continue to increase until birth happens. But if you are introducing too many calories from things that are not complete and balanced, that's where you're going to start running into some potential issues. Just earlier today, Ali sent me a study that was talking about the potential effects on litter size. For me, it's more about making sure that all of their calories are coming from complete and balanced foods versus throwing off their total balance by putting in too many extra things that don't also have all the vitamins and minerals that they would need in the correct balance. Okay. So it's okay to do that. It's okay to add a little bit of supplementation on. We just want to be careful in the amount that we do it, right? Yes. And it's, you know, if you're going to go into the you're going to go down the rabbit hole and count how many calories they're getting from, you know, this many grams of, you know, ground chicken and this many grams of cottage cheese or whatever you're going to do, do that, go ahead. But in general, I would say, you know, keep it to a couple tablespoons of those things, maybe, maybe three tablespoons at most of things that are not complete and balanced, along with a regular complete and balanced, either kibble canned food or prepared raw, whatever, you know, whatever the choice is to feed. But I would definitely say to stay on the conservative side and make sure that especially for pregnant bitches, that the vast majority of their calories are coming from something that is, you know, guaranteed to be complete and balanced. Right. What about, um, I have a question on prenatal vitamins, Ashlyn. What, uh, can, mm-hmm. you, can you break down for us for a second some of the, uh, the different vitamins and the importance and the role that it plays? Do they do anything? Do they work? If so, is there a particular brand that you recommend? Okay. I mean, I don't think they're necessary. Again, I think we like to overcomplicate nutrition a lot when in reality, most of the time, we should probably stick to what we know. However, there is a brand that creates a lot of supplements for breeding females and breeding males that I quite like. I will also preface this and say I do not own bitches and I do not have any interest in owning bitches. So I have not used any of these, but um, Breeders Edge is a very, very, very popular brand among breeders for a lot of different supplements. I have looked into using one of their supplements for males, but they are generally a brand that a lot of breeders will use um, and use pretty heavily. But it's, you know, I could take them or leave them personally. Again, I think people overcomplicate it and those things aren't necessarily going to make a huge difference every single time. Um, If you're feeding a food that has everything it needs in it, if it's highly digestible, if all of the nutrients are highly bioavailable, then you shouldn't need to add something like that. That's not to say that they don't have benefits. And again, since I have not owned bitches, um, I don't have experience with those. So I wouldn't be able to tell you in, you know, from personal experience, how well they work or how well they don't. But um, I do know that Breeders Edge is a good one. Yeah, I've used Breeders Edge on some litters, and then I've not used it on others. And I I can't say that I've really noticed a huge difference. It makes me feel good, though. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, I don't think it can hurt. Right. I, I definitely don't think it's something that could hurt, but I also, you know, scientifically speaking, would say that unless there is an obvious deficit or if there's something obviously wrong, then maybe you could use one of those and it would make a bigger difference. But otherwise, you could probably take them or leave them. I gotcha. Okay, so thus far, it, it kind of seems like a balanced diet of dog food is, for the most part, the best plan. But what about DHA, fish oil, fatty acids, that sort of thing? Yeah, so DHA is an omega-3 fatty acid. I'm going to try to pronounce it. I believe it's docosahexanoic acid. Don't clock me on that. That could be (laughs) wrong. Um, That's why everybody calls it DHA. So yeah, it's an omega-3 fatty acid um, that accumulates in the retinal tissue and the brain tissue. So DHA accumulates in the retinal and brain tissues. Um, It's extremely important for cognitive function and for vision. It is included in the AFCO nutrient profiles for growth and reproduction. And let me, I'm realizing that I have said that a couple times and people may not know what that means. AFCO is the American Association of Feed Control Officials. And those are the people who decide what, based on research from the National Research Council, they decide on what levels of nutrients need to go into a food for any animal for it to be considered complete and balanced. At least in dogs and cats, we have two different sets of nutrient profiles. We have growth and reproduction, which is one set, and then we have maintenance, which is the other set. Okay. So as soon, technically you can wait until a little later in the pregnancy, but as soon as a bitch is pregnant, you should probably go ahead and move over to a growth and reproduction food if she's not already on one. But DHA is included in those requirements. So there is a minimum required level of DHA in any food that meets the AFCO nutrient, uh, AFCO nutrient profiles for growth and reproduction. It okay. doesn't hurt to it doesn't hurt to continue supplementing with other omega threes on top of that, which include DHA. So any fish oil. Uh, krill oil, salmon oil, any kind of omega-3 supplement, it can't hurt to also include more of that in the diet. Um, I use a fish oil for both of my dogs. They also have a lot of skin and coat benefits and some other things. But any food that you're feeding will have that meets the AFCO nutrient profiles for growth and reproduction will already have at least the minimum level of DHA in the food. But it is extremely important that pregnant bitches are getting that. And then also as soon as the puppies are uh, weaning that their food is also a growth and reproduction food so that they are getting uh, DHA and then the other three huge, or I should, really I should say four, there's the three macronutrients, protein, fat, carbohydrates, and then calcium is the other big thing that we focus on with reproduction and then with very young puppies is we want to make sure that we're meeting their calcium requirements. Okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's a kind of a weird thing. It seems like a random mineral that kind of comes out of left field. And it's like, okay, everybody thinks about protein, fat, and carbohydrates, but then also calcium. Like it becomes very, very important for skeletal formation, obviously. A lot of people will, and again, I don't have bitches, so I have not done this myself, but I do know this is a thing a lot of people will do. They will either give, I think it's oral cow plus during whelping. They will give it to the dam while she's whelping. A lot of people will also do cottage cheese, Greek yogurt. I've even known breeders that do vanilla ice cream because not only do they have fat, protein, and a little bit of carbohydrates from the sugars, it also has a lot of calcium. 
So very important to meet calcium requirements, especially in, again, late stage pregnancy and then early neonatal. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I've heard a lot about calcium delivery during birth, but not as much 48 hours after labor and delivery. Yeah. um, It's, I mean, again, I don't have personal experience with that, but scientifically, yes, the calcium is very important. And, you know, we all know that in the first three to four weeks of life, especially the first three weeks, the milk from the dam, or if she's having trouble producing enough, the milk replacer is literally the only source of calories for puppies. So especially if you have a dam that's producing enough milk, you really need to make sure that you're meeting all of her nutritional requirements because that's what's then going into the milk and that's how the puppies are getting what they need. Yeah. Um, so it's super important in those first, the last stage of pregnancy and then the first few weeks um, that you're meeting all of the dam's requirements so that she's, you know, giving everything that the puppies need through the milk. Makes perfect sense. Well, coming out of the, excuse me, coming out of the, like you mentioned the first three weeks of puppy's life going up to the first eight weeks, break down for us just the importance and the role of the nutrition as far as the first eight weeks goes, something like probiotics. What's what's something that can be administered there? Probiotics are awesome. Um, there's actually quite a bit of research that says that giving pregnant bitches pre and probiotics during the last few weeks of pregnancy and through weaning is going to improve digestive health and ability in the puppies. Probiotics are also safe for puppies of any age. So as soon as they're learning to eat solid foods, they can start to have probiotics. I don't know if I would necessarily supplement probiotics if the food already has it, you know, in them. But with probiotics, you do have to think about whether or not they are shelf stable. So most probiotics on the market are not going to survive the cooking process of commercial kibble or, and they certainly cannot survive in a canned food because there's no oxygen in a can. They can't survive that. And then if they do, most of them are not going to then survive the shelf life of the pet food and then the digestion process. So all of the stomach acid. I know of for sure one probiotic that is guaranteed viable. It is Ganeden BC30. It is Bacillus coagulans. I do not know of any others. That doesn't mean there aren't any out there, but I do know for sure that Ganeden BC30 is one that is guaranteed viable. So you know that by the time it makes it to the uh, small intestine, that it is still alive and it will be able to start multiplying in the small intestine and colonize in the, well, doesn't permanently colonize the large intestine, but um, it does temporarily colonize the large intestine. So it only lasts about 24 to 48 hours. So you do have to feed it with every meal with that specific probiotic. But that's the thing that a lot of people miss on probiotics is if you buy a probiotic supplement that is not spore forming, it's probably going to die before you get it unless you are buying it from somewhere that has it refrigerated and it was transported there on a refrigerated truck. That was going to be my next question. Does it make a huge difference to be refrigerated? They only require refrigeration if they're not spore forming. And most probiotics, to my knowledge, are not spore forming. Ganeden BC30 is. And I know that there are others that are spore forming. It's just that's the one that I'm super familiar with because it's like kind of the gold standard for probiotics. But I believe lactobacillus may not be spore forming. And that is the most common one that everybody uses. Mm-hmm. I'm going to double check on that. But I do not think lactobacillus is spore forming. 
yeah, it is not spore forming. So spore forming probiotics definitely have superior viability and are more likely or guaranteed to survive all of the manufacturing, shipping and handling, shelf life, and then digestion. Um, Because there's a lot of points at which those organisms can die. So it's important to, you know, know which one you're trying to use and make sure you're using one that's actually going to be alive by the time it reaches the small intestine. That makes sense. What's the point of a probiotic if it's not alive? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So we're going to go back to DHA for a second. About this time last year, I went to a Brazos Valley Kennel Club seminar here in Bryan College Station. uh, That was Dr. Battaglia. Uh, he uh-huh. is a director, I believe at the AKC, I don't remember his specific title, um, but he has the website, uh, breeding better dogs. And that's what his seminar is called. Super, super interesting. And one of the things I specifically remember focusing on, you know, talking about, we talked about DHA in the prenatal diet. Now we're talking about DHA in the first eight weeks of life, you know, potentially into adolescent hood. Um, and I found this really awesome article. If you go to Dr. Pataglia's website, Breeding Better Dogs, and it's the title in the top right corner, there's a search bar. You can even subscribe to their newsletter there. You don't have to be a member. I don't think it costs you any money. Um, but this article is called Nutrition and DHA. And basically what they did was um, they they massively increased the levels of DHA in, in some litters of puppies and then compared their intelligence of trainability. And I believe what they did was they set up um, like a problem-solving maze and they ran the puppies through it to see how quickly they could figure out how to get to the other side. Um, and what they found was that the greater levels of DHA – the puppy had, the faster it figured out how to get through this puzzle maze. And basically the conclusion was that traditionally nutrition has been characterized as a supply of necessary building blocks for organ and system growth. Clearly this remains vitally important. However, it is becoming increasingly evident that nutrition can also uh, significantly impact the achievement of genetic potential in the puppy in ways not previously appreciated, such as the case with increased puppy trainability with appropriate dietary concentrations of DHA. Super interesting article. I can send that one to you too. And guys, if you ever get a chance to go to a Breeding Better Dog seminar by Dr. Battaglia, I definitely recommend that you do it. It's crazy interesting. Yeah, that is super interesting. I definitely have read Um, a study that did show that greater levels of DHA directly impacted their ability to learn new information and problem solve. So yeah, it, it can literally never hurt to supplement DHA, um, or omega-3 acids, uh, fatty acids in general. Awesome. And it's one of those that you can't do too much, right? I think, I mean, I would, I would need to really dive in and see if I could find any um, NRC studies, that's the National Research Council, on whether there's even an established toxicity level for omega-3s at all, but I sincerely doubt that there is. And if there was, you would have to, I mean, they would have to get into an insane amount of that supplement to be in any danger. Um, and since those are fatty acids, they're almost always liquid-based um, and specifically oil-based, so I'd be way more worried about you know, digestive upset. 
I was going to say, I, would ever I think be they worried would have about. terrible diarrhea before you would overdose yes. them on THA. <laughs> yes, they would be super, super sick just from consuming that amount of fat all at once. And I would not be concerned about any ill effects from consuming a high amount of specifically omega-3s all at once. Gotcha. Okay, so what about joint health? In those first eight weeks, is, are there yeah. important? Yeah. I mean, well, so we talk about joint health a lot with performance dogs, especially. Um, and in large breed dogs, we talk a lot about joint health. There, There's some interesting opinions on out there on when you should start with joint health. I will say that omega-3 fatty acids are an underrated method of providing joint support. Uh, there are some studies that suggest that omega-3s are more important for joint support than glucosamine or chondroitin. Most people think straight to glucosamine and chondroitin when we start talking about joint health, but omega-3s actually are an extremely important part of that. And omega-3s, you can really start pretty early on with those. My opinion on glucosamine and chondroitin is that they should not be introduced until a puppy is at least 12 weeks of age. That's not to say that anybody's doing anything wrong if they do it earlier than that, but because of the rapid growth that they're going through the rapid skeletal development that's happening from, you know, four weeks, three weeks, four weeks on to 12 to 16 weeks. I would not personally want to introduce something like glucosamine that early. Um, there are some studies that say that glucosamine can cause early fusion of the growth plates. Having said that, I still, you know, I'm pretty sure that Rio was on a glucosamine supplement from like six weeks um, and he's obviously perfectly fine. So is it likely to happen? No, but there are not any states that allow the addition of glucosamine in a growth and reproduction food. Mm -hmm. So anything that anything in the United States that meets the AFCO nutrient profiles for growth and reproduction is not going to contain glucosamine because there are some studies that suggest that it could lead to early fusion of growth plates. So I, That's I wouldn't personally, yeah, um, I would not use it before 12 weeks, but, uh, plenty of supplements out there say that from 12 weeks on, they're perfectly fine. That's the supplement that I've had Rio on since before I got him from his breeder is one of those. And she's raised puppies on that supplement since they were around six weeks old for as long as she's been breeding. And that's never been an issue. So Kind of take it with a grain of salt, but you know, yeah, it's, it's one something of those, that like, isn't a concern. Yeah, yeah, and and again, when you can tackle joint support through omega threes versus using glucosamine or chondroitin, I would definitely come from the omega three approach before I would introduce glucosamine or chondroitin. Generally, glucosamine and chondroitin are going to be more helpful for adult or senior dogs than they are going to be for younger dogs. Um, and I have spoken with many a vet that says that omega-3s are way better in general for any age of dog for joint support than glucosamine or chondroitin. So, yeah. And I've understood that basically omega-3s um, and DHA kind of mimic joint fluid. And so it's kind of like adding an extra barrier, an extra cushion, cushion an extra lubrication in there. It, is that how you would um, describe the benefits of DHA for joints or... So DHA is just one of the omega-3 fatty acids. So DHA is playing a role way more in um, cognitive development and vision than it is for joints. But 
other omega-3 fatty acids and general omega-3 fatty acids are always going to be important for synovial fluid, which is that cushion for joints. Um, What specific supplements? So that's going to be salmon oil, krill oil? Yes. Well, krill actually has um, omega-3 phospholipids, which are not technically a fatty acid. They are a little bit different and they don't, in my from my standpoint uh, and from what I understand, they don't provide as much joint support as a uh, omega-3 fatty acid would. So omega-3 fatty acids are going to be um, in things like fish oil, salmon oils. There are some algal oils, so algae-based oils out there that have them. And then there's plenty of oil blends, um, like ultra oil is one that I use, that is both plant-based oils and fish oils. Um, that is an omega three, six and nine supplement. Very cool. You'll have to tell me more about that later. Send us a link because <laughs> I've never heard of it before. Yeah, they got really popular on social media a couple years ago. And, you know, as, as with anything that immediately becomes very popular on social media, I was super skeptical of it, but it had seemed like people really, really liked it. Um, and people that I knew started using it. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll give it a shot. And my local pet store that I shop at all the time happened to have it. So I bought a bottle and, um, I don't use it for Rio, but I do use it for my older dog and she does super, super well on it. It has completely helped her grow back all of the hair on her chest and belly. Um, she's literally been bald on the bottom side of her body for, she's almost 10 and I've had her since she was two. And that entire time, she has had no hair on her belly until the last probably four months that she's been on this oil. Um, That that was a massive difference I noticed for her. Um, Yeah, it. I'm a big fan, and I do think it's you know she's obviously aging; she's almost ten, so I do think it also helps with her joints some. She's she never really had a lot of concern. Like I've never been concerned about her joint health really, um, despite her being a very large dog. She has remained very athletic and agile, um, even in her older years. So I've never been too concerned about it, but for how athletic she still is at almost 10 years old, I'm, I'm going to attribute some of that to the omega-3 supplementation. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. We're definitely going to have to drop some links at the end of the podcast. So I will have a whole list. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to get into the nitty gritty now. Tell us about grain-free versus grain-in diets. Oh, this is my favorite topic. And I know that we (laughs) talked about this earlier today because I was so excited that you wanted to talk about this. Oh, what a can of worms. (laughs) I... I will try not to I feel to like we could maybe do detailed. like a whole episode just on this topic. Honestly, yes. Like definitely. So let's let's start with the first question. Grain-free versus, versus grain-inclusive. My short answer is it doesn't matter. I think it is ridiculous that people are so afraid of grain-free diets all of a sudden. I was working at um, a pet food company when all of this scare started to happen in mid 2019 and it was in the first or sorry mid 2018 it would have been it was in the period where i was still learning a lot but you know people started asking and i was working for a company that at the time only made grain-free food because i'm sure everybody remembers that for a very long time 
everybody only fed grain. Well, not everybody, but you know, it was extremely popular to only feed grain-free food for a very, very long time. Really? Yes, definitely among pet people. Mm-hmm. Super, super common to only feed grain-free food from probably around 2010 to about 2020. But in 2018, people started getting worried about dilated cardiomyopathy, which is in short DCM. People started getting worried about dogs that were on grain-free diets supposedly developing DCM with potentially no um, genetic factors. And so it was assumed to be a nutrition issue. Totally understand people's concerns when you see something like that and when you are feeding a food from a brand that only makes grain-free food, you're going to immediately go to the brand and say, do you know about this? What's happening here? My main job function at that time was customer service. So I dealt with it day in and day out for collectively probably two years, at least. That was probably 60 to 70% of my day for those two years. Uh, So I got really comfortable talking about this, (laughs) like really comfortable. So yeah, in short, people saw an increase in diagnosis of DCM, dilated cardiomyopathy. And when they started looking into common factors between these dogs, they found that a lot of the dogs were on grain-free diets. So of course, you know, people say A plus B equals C and they run with it. All of a sudden, the market flips overnight from being vast majority of the major pet food brands were grain-free only to nobody wants to feed grain-free anymore. The market flipped overnight and everybody started changing to grain-inclusive food because it seemed that less than 10% of dogs diagnosed with this condition during that time were on grain-inclusive diets. This pandemonium has lasted, I mean, literally, people still talk about it all the time today. There's a couple very important things that we have to consider when we are talking about whether grain-free diets are, you know, appropriate or not. The biggest thing is, I kind of already touched on this, but the market share of grain-free food prior to 2018 was, I believe it was over 70% of the major dog food brands were grain-free or the major um, foods that people were feeding. Over 70% of those were grain-free foods. That was the standard for a very long time. If all of those dogs on grain-free food were going to have a problem, all of those dogs would have been diagnosed with DCM. If, if grain-free food causes DCM, all of those dogs would have been diagnosed with DCM at some point in the last few years. In reality... In reality, 0.0007% of dogs in the United States were ever impacted by a DCM diagnosis. So we really have to put that in perspective. Yeah. There were millions of dogs on grain-free diets for, if not their entire life, most of their lives, that were never once affected by this. The much bigger thing that people have now, and I think a lot of people are starting to understand that, that, you know, that correlation of, okay, well, out of all of these diagnoses of DCM, we have 90% of them are on grain-free foods. Well, that's because 70 to 90% of dogs in the United States were on grain-free foods at that time. I think people are starting to understand that a whole lot more now. Yeah. What we've started to look at instead 
is, and this is obviously, we do know that DCM runs in a lot of breeds, in particular Golden Retrievers, Dobermans. Um, it's not as common in labs, but it can occur in labs. So we do know that there are breeds that are genetically predisposed to this, but this is assumed to be the cause, or it's assumed to be caused by a nutritional deficiency. So I'm sure that you've heard a lot of people talk about taurine. Do you know what taurine is? Yes. Okay. So for anybody who doesn't, taurine is an amino acid. When we talk about cat nutrition, taurine is the first limiting amino acid for cats, which means that if cats' taurine requirements are not met, they will literally die. Yeah. This is why cats cannot be on a vegan or vegetarian diet. Cats absolutely have to eat animal protein because animal protein is a rich source of taurine and plant protein does not contain any taurine. Hmm. We already know this. This was established a very long time ago in cat nutrition. It has never been required for dogs to have dietary taurine. And yes, because dogs can synthesize taurine and cats cannot. Dogs can synthesize taurine using methionine and cysteine. So methionine and cysteine are two other amino acids. Uh, dogs do have dietary requirements for methionine and cysteine, but they do not have a dietary requirement established by the National Research Council for taurine because we know that they can use those other two amino acids to synthesize taurine themselves. And, you know, then they have enough taurine in their bloodstream to use. Uh, taurine is extremely important for heart health. So we do know that a deficiency in taurine so a decreased ability to um, synthesize taurine would lead to DCM, um, among several other heart problems. But we do know that taurine deficiency can lead to DCM. And from there, then a lot of people say, okay, well, grain-free diets are obviously deficient in taurine. Well, that's not true. Diets have been tested side by side that are grain-free diets and grain-inclusive diets, and they contain statistically the same amount of taurine. So there, there's no statistical uh, there's no statistically <laughs> significant difference in the level of taurine between a grain-free and a grain-inclusive food. Interesting. So dogs don't have to consume taurine in their diet to be able to have and make and use taurine. So we already know that a nutritional deficiency in taurine cannot be the case. There is some continued research to see if maybe we need to establish a minimum requirement of taurine for dogs. Um, obviously, all of the nutritional requirements that we know for dogs have been established based on research. It's, again, all done by the National Research Council, the NRC. So there is some continued research to see if possibly we need to include a dietary taurine requirement. But up until now, it has been determined that they don't need that. Okay. So... Then people started looking into, is it possible that there are some, there's something about grain-free carbohydrate sources that are, that is somehow blocking the absorption of taurine. So this is the current theory that everybody's kind of sitting on. There's not a great amount of research to show whether the blood taurine levels of dogs on grain-free diets versus grain-inclusive diets are any different. It's hard to do that research because it requires that you 
essentially formulate two diets that are, have the exact same amount of protein, fat, and carbohydrates, um, and same amount of amino acids, but you, one uses grain-free carbohydrate sources and one uses grain-inclusive carbohydrate yeah. sources. And at the same time, you then also have to reduce the number of those carbohydrate sources to, if you can do, you know, this one has peas and this one has corn and no other carbohydrate sources, then you're, that's really probably where you want to be. But it's just, it's so difficult to yeah. set up that, that research in a way that's meaningful. So, and, you know, reducing all of your variable, excuse me, reducing all of your variables. So it's just not an easy thing to study. So coming back around to the beginning, um, I don't care whether a food is grain inclusive or grain free. I have fed both to both of my dogs. I have recommended both to literally everyone I know. The only thing that's important to me, well, I shouldn't say only, but the thing that's a lot more interesting to me about a food is the protein, fat, and carbohydrate content and what the sources of those three ingredients are specifically. Okay. Um, and I guess we can throw fiber in there also because fiber is an important um, other nutrient to look at. So for me, it is so much more important that the diet is high in animal protein and includes as little plant protein as possible. It does not matter you know, you're, you're never going to have a food that has zero plant protein. If it has plant ingredients, it's going to have plant protein. That's just inevitable. But I want to see something that has at least, I would say, 70% of the protein in the diet coming from animal sources. So chicken, chicken meal, salmon, salmon meal, etc. Any of those animal protein ingredients. I don't want to see ingredients like, personally, I don't want to see things like pea protein or potato protein mm -hmm. up really high in the ingredients list because that's going to signal to me that there's going to be a lot of plant protein in the diet. Well, and Companies that are takes not... me into my next question. Sorry, did you okay. want to finish on that point? Well, I was just going to say companies are not required to tell you how much protein comes from animal sources versus plant sources. So it is a question that you have to ask. And a lot of companies are not going to tell you. It's not that they think they have anything to hide, but it's more usually that they're trying to protect their formulation and they don't want to give you too much information about how they formulate the food, like for trade purposes. Mm -hmm. But it is a question I recommend that people ask um, if you see plant protein ingredients like pea protein, potato protein, or Corn has a ton of protein and corn gluten meal. So those are four ingredients that if you see those up in, up high in the ingredient list, I would recommend asking the company if they can tell you the split of animal protein versus plant protein in the diet. Yeah. So that takes me into my next question. I had questions about potatoes because I know that a lot of the dog food brands that I see that, you know, the packaging is really attractive and it looks like it's a really clean, you know, sourced product potatoes a lot of times are like the number two or number three ingredient. And I know that when we have a lot of legumes in our diet that can't necessarily be great for dogs. I shouldn't say it can't, but I, my research says that it's not super great. Um, and then the other thing is, and you've helped me process a lot through this because I've tried a few different dog foods over the years 
And I've, I've had an issue with the phytoestrogens and how they impact yeah. breeding females. And I know that the peas have a lot to do with that. I'm not sure if the potatoes do, but can you talk us uh, through that a little bit, the phytoestrogens oh. and what that looks like and what it means and what to avoid? Yeah. So phytoestrogens are, they are estrogen-like compounds that are found in plants. We talk about this a lot in women's health with soy. Soy is extremely high in, or I shouldn't say extremely, it is relatively high in phytoestrogens. And then the other pet food ingredients that we tend to look at and be concerned about with phytoestrogens are, like you said, peas. Um, flaxseed is one that a lot of people look at. I don't think potatoes are a concern for phytoestrogens. They're, I don't mind potatoes in a food, but, you know, you do have to think about high glycemic versus low glycemic carb sources. Um, and that's a whole other can of worms. But the phytoestrogens are estrogen-like compounds produced by plants that do have some ability to interrupt hormone pathways or to influence hormone pathways. There's not a lot of great research proving that that happens, but we do know that phytoestrogens have the potential to affect those pathways. Um, I personally avoid peas and flaxseed for Rio because he's a stud dog. I wouldn't say don't ever feed them, but I would say that it's something worth being concerned about and something worth considering a food switch if you feed something that is high in those ingredients to dogs that you intend to breed and especially with females. I think it's a little more important for females to avoid those ingredients than it is for breeding males. I mean, I know you certainly saw that with some of your girls. I know that you had a lot of really small litters there for a while and mm -hmm. or litters that uh, didn't take. Yeah. And then I had had several friends that I was just raving about the dog food I was on. And so they switched over to it to three or four different breeder friends of mine. And then all of our litters stopped taking. We couldn't get any of our girls pregnant for like six or eight months. And then every single one of us switched to a new food and our girls started getting pregnant again. Yeah. It's, it's definitely something that I have heard quite a few people say that when they switch off of something that has a lot of peas or flaxseed and flaxseed is generally not an ingredient that you're going to have a ton of in the diet anyway, but it is one that's worth thinking about. Well, I've noticed um, when I look at a dog food bag, if I'm ever thinking about trying something different, I'm looking at the top seven ingredients. If I see, please, mm -hmm. excuse me, if I see peas or flaxseed and it's down at the bottom, you know, next to the stuff that they're not putting a lot of, a lot in there for, it's like, oh yeah, you know, that's flaxseed oil. They're using it just as an oil. I'm not super concerned about that, but you'll have a lot of dog foods where you see peas or flaxseed oil in the top seven ingredients. And those are the ones that are really going to have the potential to mess with your females and their, and their reproductive systems and cycles. And do they cycle regularly and are they ovulating whenever they cycle? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I don't want to, I don't want to ever tell people just to blanket avoid something. So that's definitely not what I'm saying, but what I am saying is it's worth thinking about and it's worth, you know, if you are noticing any fertility issues in females specifically, I would take a look at your food and see if there are, you know, peas in the first couple ingredients. Ingredients that you don't have to worry about for that, uh, pea fiber, to my knowledge, does not contain the part of the pea that would have a lot of phytoestrogens. I'm so not 100% sure on that. that's going to be the shell, that. right? 
that um, a lot of the dog foods that you're going to have problems with are going to be um, companies that are processing the pea and the shell, the, the entire pea, right? Yes, I think whole peas. So in the ingredients list, that would either, there's a couple different ways they can list that, but it would either be peas, ground peas, whole peas, green peas, or yellow peas. I think those are the five ways they can list whole peas. That is what I would be more concerned about with phytoestrogens than like pea fiber. I will also say flaxseed oil does not contain the phytoestrogens. So flaxseed oil is actually okay, okay. but whole flaxseed or ground flaxseed would contain the phytoestrogens and would be something that you would maybe want to consider how much of that is making up their diet. Okay. And it's hard to find out for sure, obviously, because formulas are proprietary and companies are not going to tell you exactly how much of that ingredient they're putting in their food. And again, it's not because they're hiding anything. It's because it's for trade purposes. They cannot release that information. There's a lot of reasons that companies would not want to tell you exactly what the formula of their food is. And it's not, again, it's not because they're being secretive. It's because um, they it's not put because they a lot of money into research and ingredients yes. and the percentages of everything that they're putting in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're not going to tell you that, but you can generally judge by asking the question again of how much of the protein in this formula is from plant protein versus animal protein. That's a good question to ask because if they'll give you that information, that'll give you a relative idea of how much, you know, how many plant ingredients or how much of the diet is made up of plant ingredients, which would include potential phytoestrogens. So you kind of have to do your own math on that. And draw some conclusions based on asking other questions, but it is worth, again, evaluating uh, if you think you're having those kinds of fertility issues in females, or if you're having, you know, low sperm count in males, I think it is worth looking into reducing ingredients that contain phytoestrogens in the diet. Are there any ingredients that we need to be worried about with males and decreasing sperm production? Not that I'm aware of. The old, I, I think about phytoestrogens for males. There's not really anything that would be in your every your everyday dog food that I would be concerned about with sperm production. Um, since males' hormone cycle is much shorter, obviously, um, being like within a day versus a female's hormone cycle being every six months, they have a few weeks of a natural hormone cycle or about every six months, you know, every dog is different. But since their hormone cycles are much more consistent, I don't worry nearly as much about those kinds of things affecting male dogs versus female dogs. Uh, female dogs are a lot more sensitive and have a lot more complicated hormone pathways than males. Okay. That's good to know. So I want to transition really quickly over to allergies because a yes. lot of people think that their dog has allergies. That's kind of like the number one go-to. Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. my eight-week-old puppy has allergies. <laughs> but you told me something really interesting about um, the age range when a dog, if it truly has allergies, when they're going to manifest. Can you talk to us a little bit about that plus sensitivities to food versus intolerance to food versus allergies? Yes. So true food allergies in dogs almost don't exist. Dogs do not experience an anaphylactic reaction to an allergen the way that a person would. So like the way that a person has a peanut allergy, that does not exist in dogs. Or if it does, it's like a one in 10 million phenomenon. They just don't experience food allergies like that. They do experience 
um, food sensitivities that manifest with a lot of itching and licking and similar allergy symptoms. So generally those get referred to as food allergies, even though it's not a true allergy, it's a sensitivity. That is less than 10% of the pet population. So it is extremely uncommon for dogs to have a true, you know, dietary restriction like that. What's more common is that they have a gastrointestinal sensitivity to an ingredient and they, you know, get diarrhea or vomiting when they eat certain ingredients. That's a whole lot more common. But the what we would call an allergy in dogs um, is less than 10% of dogs and then a true allergy like an anaphylactic reaction just doesn't exist in dogs what about yeah yeasty skin or itchy skin is that you wouldn't consider that an allergy or would you would you put that under sensitivity or intolerance i i have been told that that is a sensitivity and not a true allergy the yeast is a secondary reaction to the incessant licking and itching when dogs spend a lot of time you know you'll see in a lot of dogs that are having allergy quote-unquote allergy issues they're licking and chewing on their paws a ton Mm -hmm. and all of that contact with saliva is creating a warm moist environment for the yeast that already exists on their skin to you know become overgrown so the yeast is like a secondary reaction to them having some kind of food sensitivity. Proteins are what cause that reaction in dogs. So meaning the protein molecule. So somebody might say, oh, my dog is allergic to chicken. That's the number one thing that dogs can be allergic to or have a sensitivity to would be chicken. So people say my dog's allergic to chicken. So my dog can't have chicken fat in their diet. Within the pet food industry, chicken fat is by far the most common fat ingredient in um, a kibble. A lot of times you get people saying, I'm, I'm trying to find a kibble that doesn't have chicken fat. And while there definitely are some out there, a dog that has a sensitivity to chicken can still eat chicken fat. Because that sensitivity is a reaction to the presence of protein molecules, there's no protein in chicken fat. It is the isolated fat itself. So they actually can't have that reaction to purified chicken fat. So it's a response to the presence of proteins. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that um, that it's the protein molecules that cause the reaction and not, you know, something else about the um, ingredient. So well, that's um, really interesting. That's an I interesting had a, one. <laughs> yeah, I had some dogs in training the last couple of months that were allergic to chicken. And trying to find a training treat that doesn't contain any chicken byproduct or chicken fat was very difficult. So it's kind of neat to know that, you know, chicken as a primary protein source is maybe off limits, but chicken fat is still okay. That actually opens up the possibilities pretty substantially. Yeah. And of course, you know, there is the cross-contamination factor and things like that. So it depends on the severity of the sensitivity. But in general, an ingredient like chicken fat, if the sensitivity is to chicken, they shouldn't have a reaction to purified chicken fat. So you had also brought up, I think you had brought up avoiding those allergies in the first, you know, in whatever time period you have. Yeah. So also at Dr. Battaglia's seminar, um, he talked about 
um, alternating protein sources or introducing alternate protein sources during this the first six months of life and how studies were demonstrating that dogs who had alternate protein sources were much less likely to experience allergies or food sensitivities. So I actually reached out to you probably about a month ago and said, should I be changing? You know, like, do I stay within the same dog food brand, but pick different protein sources? And like, do I change it every month? Or what does this look like? How do I do this to set my adolescent puppies up for success? Definitely want to introduce different protein sources. You know, in the first six months to a year of your dog's life, you really want them to come in contact with, I would say probably chicken, beef, a couple different kinds of fish. Pork is a good one past that, you're not going to have a ton of different protein sources that would be super common, but all important things for your dog to be exposed to in the first six months to a year of life um, so that they don't develop a sensitivity to those ingredients. My caveat to that is that with growing puppies, and especially if you intend on doing anything with sports or confirmation with those dogs, it's, a, it's incredibly important that they grow structurally to their genetic potential. So during that period, especially in the first six months of their life, they're experiencing pretty rapid growth. It's very important to keep their protein, fat, and carbohydrate levels, since those are going to be the three ways that they get their calories. It's very important to keep those levels very consistent. I made that mistake with Rio when he was um, a little puppy. I didn't think through the fact that if I changed his food every time I bought a bag, I was going anywhere from 27% protein to 35% protein. I was going from anywhere from 17 to 22% fat and, you know, all over the place on carbohydrates. I do not think that he grew to his genetic potential because I was changing his uh, you would call that the metabolizable energy profile of the food really consistently. So I was changing what percentage of the calories came from protein, fat, and carbohydrates all the time. It is really, really important to find out what works for them as far as levels of protein, fat, and carbohydrates go and stick to that for the first definitely year of life. I would say 18 months for sure from my personal experience. In general, I think the better way to expose them to different proteins would be to introduce those as treats. So, you know, they may be on a main food that is primarily chicken. So you can introduce them to beef and pork treats, or, you know, you could do something like giving them some pieces of freeze-dried salmon with their dinner and things like that. That's not to say that you can't change the protein source of their food. You certainly can. And it's not to say that you can't change the levels of protein, fat, and carbohydrates in their food. You totally can. I just wouldn't do it very often at all. And I would do it carefully. Yeah. Because uh, it's really important that they grow correctly if they're going to have a career either in the show ring or as a performance dog. Yeah. So after we had this conversation, I went to the store and I bought duck jerky, beef-flavored treats, salmon-flavored treats, and I think I even found some venison too. And then awesome. the puppy food my, – my puppies are thanking you for this, by the way. 
Um, and then <laughs> the puppy food that I initially had them on had a lot of phytoestrogens in it. And I really liked that for the first like six months of life. But then I'm slowly switching them over to something that's got a lot less phytoestrogens in it to make sure that it's a really easy and smooth transition. So thanks for mm-hmm. thanks for the tips on that. You're so- welcome. Yeah, I would do it really differently with my next puppy. I am I regret not realizing that while changing and I was staying within one brand. So I thought and I worked for the brand. I should have known better, but I just didn't think through this at the time. <laughs> And I just I'll try all of it. it, Literally, yes. Like, (laughs) I I was just like, I'm just going to feed him everything that we make because I trust it all and I know that it's great. And that was true. I I do still trust all of that food. And it is a fantastic brand. I just didn't realize that, especially, I mean, his, again, his main career for a very long time was really the first two years of his life was showing. And he did not grow the way he should have. And he's evened out quite a bit now, but he, he did not grow the way that he should have because I was just changing that metabolizable energy profile of his food all the time. Would definitely not do it that way with the next one. Yeah. So talking about supplements again, are there any that you love? Are there any that you avoid? I wouldn't necessarily say there's any I avoid. So I would say that Supplements are, if you're going to use a supplement, it should be targeted with one exception. And Allie, you turned me on to this supplement and I'm so thrilled that you did. Um, oh, I'm so glad we're going to give them a plug. Yes. I was hoping you were going to talk about them. I love Phytovite. Phytovite is the only like what I would call quote unquote broad spectrum vitamin and mineral supplement that I would recommend. Um, and that's F-I-D-O-V-I-T-E, Doctor's Choice Supplements. Yes. And we do not get any kickbacks from that, but we do love them. <laughs> um, or I don't, maybe you do. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> I Yeah, I will say I am not affiliated with them as a brand. I really just genuinely like them. I was having a lot of problems with Rio's coat. Again, show dog. So coat is extremely important. Um, and especially in labs, coat is extremely important. Um for the confirmation ring. He has struggled with this coat for a while. Um, so I had tried salmon oil. I had tried a more generic fish oil. I had tried ultra oil. I had tried so many different things. I had him on salmon based food. I was doing everything I could. And Allie finally says to me one day, I have used this, uh, to improve coats in dogs quite a few times and I love it. And I started seeing in other Facebook groups, a lot of specifically lab breeders were saying that they loved this. Again, I had never thought that a general vitamin and mineral supplement would be necessary or be a good idea even. But I was like, you know what? Everybody swears by this. I'm just going to try it. Within a month, this dog's coat had improved so much. In a month of using Phytovite, his coat just improved so much. The texture especially was what I noticed, but he also had a lot more top coat growth, which is really what he lacks. He has a ton of undercoat, but he doesn't quite have enough top coat on a lot of his body. And within just a month of using it, I already noticed that the top coat growth was just so much better. And he just, he doesn't shed as much, which has been a huge issue. He has shed like crazy. Um, And he doesn't shed nearly as much now. He's still, I mean, he's a lab. He's going to shed a lot, but he doesn't shed nearly as much as he was. So my one caveat to saying um, 
that I don't generally recommend vitamin and mineral supplements is that I love Phytovite a yeah. lot. Yeah. It did a ton for Parker's coat whenever we got him too. Yeah. It makes such a big difference. So I started giving it to my puppies as part of their gruel and my puppies coats were beautiful. Um, I've also had really good luck with it as far as dogs who are not food motivated. Um, Oh, absolutely. My best friend's dog, I think she was like 15 or 16 before she passed away. And for the last year of life, they could just barely get her to eat anything. And I introduced her to Phytovite and she's like, she finishes every single meal. So, okay. I have noticed the same thing. So Nora, my rescue dog does not get Phytovite. Um, but, and she is extremely picky. She does not want to eat anything. Every single time I put Rio's bowl down with the Phytovite on it, she wants to try to steal his food from him. <laughs> and she never cared. They do, they eat different kibbles, but she never cared about his kibble Yeah. until I started putting the Phytovite on it. And just tonight when we were feeding the dogs, I said to Miles, should we just give her some? Like, clearly she wants it. Totally. Um, and I personally think that I'm pretty sure it, they use animal plasma as one of the ingredients. And I think that may be what it is. I think there's also a pork ingredient in there and pork has really good palatability. Well, I was going to um, say, I, I put the powder on the food and then I put warm water on it and it makes like a chicken yes. soupy smell. And I'm like, yes. I would eat that. <laughs> yes. I think the same thing. Every time I put the water on top of it, I'm like, this actually smells great. Yes. So yeah, highly, highly, highly recommend that for, I mean, there's, I can't think of anything that I would not use that for. Well, that's not true. There's medical conditions that I wouldn't use yeah. that for. But like general, anything that you have going on with the dog, like like you said, pickiness. We've talked about the skin Inability to gain weight, not eating well, poor yes. coat. Highly recommend it really for all of that. And I It will, also has a lot of say, probiotics in it. And I do yes. refrigerate mine. Yeah, I do keep it in the fridge also. It, yeah, it's the only broad vitamin and mineral supplement that I recommend. Okay. In general, though, I will say that in general, vitamin and mineral supplements are not necessary. So I'm using this because of its skin and coat benefits. You know, I, I have a targeted use for this. And I think that's the approach that everyone should take to supplements is if you want to add a supplement to your dog's diet, what is the targeted health outcome of that? What do you want out of the supplement? And then you pick a supplement that does that. I would not recommend adding a vitamin and mineral supplement to a complete and balanced food if you don't have a specific health goal in mind for it. So you do need to do it carefully to avoid any, you know, overloads on any vitamins and minerals. Right. But yeah, I've been super happy with it. Um, I also use Vets Best Hip and Joint Chews. That mm -hmm. is the, um, it's omega-3s and glucosamine and chondroitin, MSM. I don't remember. I don't have the label in front of me, so I don't remember what else it has in it. But I've used those forever for Rio. I use a different CBD-based uh, joint supplement for my older dog. Mm -hmm. I've been super happy with CBD for her also behaviorally. Yeah, um, good stuff about that. Yes, she... Um, She's a sweet baby angel with people. She's never met a stranger. She loves every single human. She is not great with new dogs. Having said that, every dog of Allie's I've ever had in my house, she's like obsessed with. Um, <laughs> but I think she just likes labs. Um, well, and I like, like, I like dogs with balanced temperaments too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, she, she has really benefited from CBD behaviorally. That is, that is definitely one that 
I would do with a lot of research on dosage. I am not an expert on CBD dosage. I stumbled across what works for her and I just keep going with it. But that is one that I would certainly work with somebody with a intense education in cannabinoids with. Um, and obviously also with canine nutrition knowledge, because the way that a human digests a cannabinoid is completely different than how a dog would digest it. So definitely very important to have knowledge of both things. If you're going to explore that for your dog, we bought a CBD bone just for like shits and giggles. And Zach can attest to this. I've got a picture of one of the puppies laid over on her back looking like a total stoner after 15 minutes of chewing on <laughs> a CBD bone. She was pretty happy. Yeah, it is really awesome for sleepiness or um, kind of mellowing dogs out that either have really bad anxiety or are just overexcitable, overaroused. It has really, really great applications in those dogs. So I do recommend exploring it if you have a professional um, that can help guide you through the dosage. Because that is not, I certainly am not an expert on the dosage at all. I really just happen to find something that works for her and I'm just rolling with it. But nice. um, what else do I use? I talked about ultra oil. I use ultra oil also for her. It's helped her grow back all of that hair on her belly and her chest. So she is no longer, we used to call her bald girl. She's no longer bald Aww. girl. And, oh, I do use a mushroom supplement for her as well. So I, I use a, a mushroom blend. Um, I believe it is reishi, reishi. I don't know how to say it, but uh, reishi mushrooms, uh, lion's mane, I believe. Oh, I and then I think, that. I think there's one other mushroom in that blend. And I don't remember what it is, but it's supposed to have cognitive benefits. So since she's older, I am you know, giving that to her. She's been on it for, I don't know, maybe, maybe six months now. I don't, I won't say I've necessarily seen a difference because she is a glorified couch ornament. She does nothing um, because she just, that's how she's happiest is just snuggling and living her life. She's certainly not a sport dog or anything. We don't do any fancy training with her. She just has her, you know, she has her obedience down and that's pretty much it. And she's just lover otherwise, but since she is older, I wanted to include something that might have some cognitive benefits as she ages. Um, we did for a little bit have some issues with her where we were afraid she was going a little bit senile. You know, she does wander aimlessly sometimes, especially at night. She'll stand in the middle of the room and just kind of stare at us. And we're like, what do you want? And she just stands there and stares for a few I minutes before she know. gives up. And yeah, and she does really, I, she, I should not make her sound super ancient. She's really not. She, for the most part, is the same dog that she was when she was two years old and fresh out of the shelter. But yeah. just, you know, it's something that I thought about as she was getting older and said, this is something that I would like to add to her diet just to, you know, in case she was going to decline, I'm going to get ahead of it and see if I can give her something that's going to Prevent Hopefully prevent yeah. that or at least slow it. Yeah. So Ginger, which was my first dog to play the Huntess game with, um, she is now 11. She's going to be 12 on March the 6th. And about a week before her 12th birthday, I am planning to run her as the test dog for started for the upcoming Alamo <gasps> test. 
Yes. Oh, I didn't know Gingy was coming. Yes, I think I'm going to run Miss Gingy. She's just so happy to do the work. Zach went hunting the other day and he brought home a couple ducks and we took her in the backyard and she's like, I'm old and my movement from a sit to a go is a little slow, but I'm still playing. So, Oh, sweet baby. Oh my gosh, that's going to make me cry. Yes. Well, I'm going to give you my camera oh, and you're so going to have sweet. to take pictures. Absolutely. I'm going to have to do that. That Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. So that moves us into our senior dog section. So they make a lot of senior pet foods. Um, and I think a lot of them say, I think seven and up. Um, Usually. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what are some of the ingredient differences? What are some of the benefits of senior food? Is that kind of the right age to move them at seven? Do you, does it matter what age you move them over? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So senior foods are a marketing claim versus an actual like scientific, you know, category. They are still, as far as the aconutrient pro profiles are concerned, they are still a maintenance food. They generally, and it's obviously going to vary by brand because, again, it's a marketing claim. It's not a, um, it's not like a technical term. They're usually going to be higher in fiber, lower in fat, and have some kind of joint support component, usually being chondroitin and glucosamine. I also know that several brands include L-carnitine, which is a um, fat metabolism supplement. It's an amino acid, but it plays an important role in the metabolism of fats. So since a lot of senior dogs are more prone to obesity than being underweight, a lot of brands will target keeping them from gaining too much weight from being in reduced activity. Obviously, there is the less common case of older dogs that are extremely underweight, but that's not nearly as common. So usually the target is going to be reducing calories and keeping them from gaining weight as their activity goes down. Well, I know what whenever we Trouble was older, he he made it until right before his 13th birthday. And the vet told me that one of the major reasons for that was because we kept him at a healthy weight for so long. And that a lot yes. of the elderly dogs that they see come in really, really out of shape and overweight. And I was like, I can't get him to gain any weight. And they were like, his weight is perfect. Don't put any more on him. Yes. It is most definitely one of the most important things with senior dogs is to keep them at an appropriate weight, whether that means that they need to take a few pounds off or put a few pounds on. Um, it is extremely important to keep them at an appropriate weight because that's going to be a great indicator of their health and vitality. But yeah, I mean, it statistically obesity is extremely common in uh, older dogs because a lot of people just don't change their diet at all right. and continue feeding them the same amount that they've always fed mm -hmm. them, despite them being way less active. And there's also an emotional component to it, especially right. pet owners tend to show their love to their dogs through food and treats. So yeah. As they age, there's, you know, an emotional reaction to watching your dog slow down and, you know, their face goes gray. Um, they get a few lumps and bumps, whatever. Oh my gosh, um, you're describing ginger to, to a T right I now. know. <laughs> and, you know, especially pet owners um, that may not be as savvy to, you know, nutrition or behavior or anything like that. They, they may tend to react emotionally to that by offering the dog more food. So 
it there's a couple factors at play as to why obesity is so common in senior dogs, but it yeah. is extremely common. What we used to tell people uh, at the first brand I worked at when they asked when they should switch to senior food was when you notice your dog slowing down. It can't hurt to change them earlier than that. At one of the brands I worked for, my older dog's favorite food was the senior food, and she was four years old at the time. And, but it didn't matter because technically a senior food is just a maintenance, maintenance food. Yeah. Exactly. So it doesn't matter. It was still meeting all of her requirements. And since she is a large breed, um, it also had the joint support. And so I just went with it and said, yeah. that's fine. And since she was so picky for so long, she's less picky now, but gosh, she was incredibly picky for so many years. And she latched onto that food. It was trout based. And she was like, I love trout. This is what I'm going to eat forever. <laughs> and I just said, okay, I'm going to roll with it then. So I fed her senior food for um, on and off for probably two years. Um, and she's back on a senior food now with another brand. And she does extremely well on it. She super likes it. Um, and she's been on that since she was probably eight. And, you know, we've seen some signs in aging for her for a while. She sleeps way more. She doesn't want to play as much. Not that she's not happy. You know, she's extremely happy. She All she wants is to put all 75 pounds of her in your lap. You know, we've noticed some signs of aging with her. So right around when she turned eight, we switched her back over to another senior food. It is a lot lower in protein, really, than even what I would prefer. But it's pretty low in protein and fat, and she literally is not active at all. She sleeps almost all the time. So that's fine with me. I, I don't mind that it's lower in protein and fat um, and higher in carbohydrates because she's in fantastic condition, Yeah. Um, especially for a dog that literally doesn't do anything. Right. She like looks very athletic for mm, no reason. She does. Well, you <laughs> talked about um, owners not adjusting the food you know, wanting to feed yeah. what they always feed. And I think it's really important that we hit on that we should f uh, feed to achieve ideal body weight. And what that looks like yes. is whenever we're standing above our dog and we're looking down, we should be able to see an hourglass shape. So we see the ribs and then we should see a defined waist behind the ribs, an hourglass shape. If I can see hips or ribs or spine, my dog is too skinny. But if I have a dog who looks like a sausage body, <laughs> which means that it's it's a flat, you know, shape all the way around, there is no hourglass figure, then that means my dog is too skinny. And it's really normal throughout your dog's lifetime that you're going to adjust their food depending on the seasons, depending on their age. I've noticed that during certain times of the year, I have to cut my dog's food back to achieve ideal body weight. And other times of the year, I have to increase their food to achieve ideal body weight. But we don't feed based on what the bag says, because if my dog is overweight and I look at the weight range, it's going to tell me to feed more and keep him overweight. I feed to achieve ideal body weight, which I determine by looking at my dog's composition. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Just like a lot of other things with dog food, people love to overcomplicate feeding and it's really not difficult. You have to be sure to not go blind to what your dog looks like. I recently made that mistake and Rio gained uh, 12 pounds in four months. Um, <laughs> and I went a little blind and just kept feeding him the same amount of food. And we went to the vet last week and the vet said he was here four months ago and weighed 76 pounds and he weighs 88 now. And I said, there is no way we weighed him <laughs> seven times no. because I was like, there is no way. I was like, there's literally no way. 
because I didn't see it. And yeah. then now that we've gone, now that we've gotten home and I have that information, I look at him and I'm like, oh my God, what have I so, done? Yes. So definitely made that mistake myself where I should have decreased his food over the last few months, knowing that we were not being as active. He was not spending as much time outside because it was so cold. And despite being a Labrador and he will swim no matter what temperature it is, we don't have water in our backyard. So he has no interest in being outside really ever. But even when it's cold outside, he's like, no, thanks. Rather would be inside. So he just, <laughs> I am house dog. I messed that up for sure. And should have been feeding him so much less in the last couple months to, you know, adjust for the fact that we weren't nearly as active um, as we had been before. And poor buddy, is definitely going on a little bit of a diet here shortly. I mean, he just got some his of those first off. AKC show points, so maybe it was not a problem. He maybe did. Not a big deal. That is true. Yeah. And actually, you know what? That is, talking about body condition, I would, because I would imagine that some of the listeners on this podcast probably have show line, English confirmation dogs, whatever you want to call them. I will touch on that really quick with body condition. When you're judging the body condition of the dog, Ali, I love that you said look at them from the top and not look at them from the side. Mm. A show line Labrador should not have an abdominal tuck. Field lines usually do have an abdominal tuck, so you can also look at them from the side to judge. Yeah, and when she says abdominal tuck, she's talking about the little, um, how would you describe that, Ashlyn? (laughs) Well, in in the standard, it's described as a tuck up. So when you're looking at them from the side, if you're looking at the underline of the dog, they should have a, um, after the rib cage, the line of their body should go up underneath their lower back. If it is like a field bred dog, they usually are going to have that um, abdominal tuck. So it's going to come up towards their back right after the rib cage and into the hind leg. Which gives them kind of um, a barrel looking chest. Yes. Um, if you have a show line confirmation bred English lab, um, they should not have an abdominal tuck and they also should not need to be overweight to lose their tuck, not have the tuck. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the breed standard says they should have little to no tuck up. So a little bit of one is okay, but even, you know, a, a dog that has those genetics is never going to have an extreme abdominal tuck. So if you have one of those dogs, don't judge their body condition by looking at them that way because a, usually a vet is going to tell you they're extremely overweight if they don't have a tuck up. And in most other breeds, that is absolutely correct. But specifically with show line labs, that may not be correct for them. Yeah. So I love that you said to look at them from the top. Like, um, and like to they're not at heel. The side. Yeah, they're at heel at your side and they're standing and you're looking at them from above. Yes. Yes, that is that is my preferred way of judging body condition, especially in showline labs. And then also by putting hands on them, mm-hmm. um, you should be able to feel their ribs and they should not have a lot of fat cover over their ribs. But their ribs are not necessarily going to be visible, even in a field bred dog. Their, their ribs are not necessarily going to be visible and they don't necessarily need to be visible, um, but they should be palpable. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of working labs um, 
at a point where maybe you can see a little bit of definition on that last rib, but you can't see individual ribs. And yes. for a dog who's running a field trial or doing a lot of hunt testing and they're running long distances and swimming a lot and being really hard on their joints, being able to see that last rib is a really good thing because that means they're not carrying any additional weight that they don't need that's going to do damage to their joints. Yes, absolutely. So really quickly, um, we kind of touched on some things. We're getting in here to senior food. We talked about fish oil and DHA and heart health in addition to joint health. So we don't need to cover that again. Um, we talked about the importance of keeping your senior dogs at a healthy weight. Last question, things you wish more people knew about canine nutrition. I think the top thing that I wish people understood is honestly like how making and labeling a dog food works. So I'm going to give it, I'm going to try to do like a less than one minute explanation here, but the governing body of pet food in the United States is the FDA and the FDA adopts recommendations set forth by AFCO, which is the American Association of Feed Control Officials. Technically, the labeling standards for pet food are set by each state. Their state feed control official will decide what the pet food labeling guidelines are going to be for that state and they require that you register your labels as a pet food manufacturer with the state so that they can say okay yes you can sell that product here that's the basics of how that part of it works the other part of it is most of the time a pet food company is not going to own their manufacturing facility pet food is not a vertically integrated industry meaning like vertical integration would mean that the company, for example, grows their own ingredients, owns their own manufacturing facility, owns the um, distribution uh, company and everything. Pet food is not vertically integrated. So there are third parties at literally every step of the process. And there is so there are so many checkpoints for safety and quality control because there are so many third parties involved. Everybody has to keep each other accountable for following all the rules. I think people are really quick to assume that a pet food company is going to do whatever they can to hide things from you and to skate by doing the bare minimum. And nobody who set out to make a pet food and provide nutrition to animals does this because they hate animals. Yeah. Everybody does this because we love animals. And I really, I really wish that people understood just how much effort it takes um, and how many hoops you have to jump through to put a pet food on the market. So, you know, nobody, no pet food company is out here trying to kill your dog. That's just not happening. And it's, it seems like, especially right now, a lot of people are assuming that pet food companies are evil and they're trying to hide everything from everybody. Um, but they're really not. They, nobody does this because they hate animals. We all do it because we love animals and we want to bring something into the table that's different uh, from what everybody else does in some way or another. So that's my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. This was super fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it gets to a point where you just be quiet and let the ladies talk. <laughs> so, 
You made the right choice. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> well, we got we got going, and I was just like, you know what? I'm just gonna let them go. Um, <laughs> we could do this for hours. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll see. But um, I, well, I just I didn't want to interrupt it. I mean, it's it's a solid good useful information coming through the speakers right now and i was not fixing to get in the way of that at all um <laughs> but seriously though we we really appreciate you being on this evening ashlyn but we we are pretty much over budget on time but we can <laughs> we can always bring you back on uh for another episode because i've got a feeling that there's a lot a lot more to this that y'all yes. can, that you, yeah exactly that y'all can hit on but <laughs> But y'all, I, I really hope that y'all have enjoyed this episode, but even more so, I hope that y'all are able to take a lot from this episode. Uh, and um, if y'all can't tell, Ashlyn and Allie are um, pretty knowledgeable. And I hope that y'all, again, I hope y'all are able to take something from this evening. But before we go, I uh, just want to remind everybody um, about our hunt test on the 24th and 25th of February. We've got training days on the 3rd, the 10th, and the 17th. RSVP to Jamie Reed. If y'all would like to attend that, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can uh, just search at Alamo Retriever Club. You can also check out the website at uh, alamoretrieverclub.org. And, babe, tell them where the podcast can be found. Yeah, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, uh, Amazon Music, and Audible. And then, Ashlyn, if we have anybody who wants to ask them specific questions from you um, or pick your brain about anything, do you have a way that they can contact you? Absolutely. Um, I know that, or I think that I was tagged in the Alamo Retriever Club post about the podcast. So definitely feel free to message me on Facebook. Um, I have an email address. It's real long. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, that's difficult, but yeah, if you have questions, um, give us, about this? spell us your name on Facebook so we can find you. Oh, that's as hard as spelling my email. Um, <laughs> It is Ashlyn Brandenburg Lane, A-S-H-L-Y-N. My maiden name, Brandenburg, B-R-A-N-D-E-N-B-U-R-G. And then my last name, Lane, L-A-N-E. Awesome. Thank you so much for tonight. We've really, really enjoyed it. Thank of you, Ashlyn. Yeah, you. thanks, y'all. Right. Well, have a great night. Thank you again for joining us. Yes, thank you. Uh-huh. Bye. 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 Bye.